Go and open your Bibles with me this morning, church, to the book of Colossians. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 2 together. And uh, let's start by bowing together for a word of prayer. So let's ask for the Lord's help in this part. Lord, we thank you for the privilege that, that is ours to carry all of our griefs and all of our burdens and all of our struggles to you in prayer. Thank you for Jesus, who is such a faithful refuge to all of us. Thank you, Lord, that in our seasons of affliction, uh, that we can draw near to Christ with the promise that he hears and he helps and he cares and he carries. And uh, Father, I pray that, that our focus, our goal in everything that comes our way in life would be to continue to look to Jesus, continue to trust in Jesus. And so, Lord, I pray that as we turn our attention to Scripture now, that we would not get far away from that, that in everything our eyes would be lifted up to Christ and what he's done for us. And we pray this in his great name. Amen. Uh, again, church, we're going to be in Colossians chapter 2 together this morning. Um, Chuck Swindoll tells the story about a missionary couple that he knew. It was a young couple that had surrendered to the mission field. And uh, so they uprooted their family. Uh, they had a couple young kids. They moved to this foreign country. And not long after they got there, they were kind of getting settled into their new home. And they realized that one of their family's favorite food items wasn't available in this new country. That This country didn't have peanut butter. Now, if that would probably have been the bottom line for me. I'd have got on the first plane back home. But they didn't have peanut butter. Well, what missionaries will often do is they'll have family members back home who will send care packages over. So some of the luxury items from the States that they miss, they'll put in these boxes and they'll ship overseas. And so what they did is they just asked their family and their friends to start including peanut butter jars in the care packages that would be sent over. So every few months they'd get a package and it would have a couple jars of peanut butter in it. So problem solved, right? Well, not quite. What they didn't know is that the other missionaries there who they were serving with felt like giving up peanut butter was one of the sacrifices they were supposed to make to serve God on the mission field. They, they felt like um, peanut butter, giving up peanut butter was kind of like their cross to bear. They needed to give up peanut butter to serve the Lord well there. And so the other missionaries confronted this young couple and told them that if they were going to serve Christ faithfully there, they had to stop getting peanut butter sent from back home. That they couldn't serve Christ well on the mission field and still get peanut butter. Well, the young missionaries thought that was ridiculous, and so they didn't stop getting peanut butter sent. They decided they were just going to keep eating peanut butter in private. They wouldn't give their kids peanut butter and jelly sandwiches if other people were around. So they kept eating their peanut butter, thinking that if they didn't see it going on, that would solve it, but it didn't. The other missionaries wouldn't let it go. They kept confronting them as if not having peanut butter was kind of a, uh, a de facto rule that if you were going to serve Jesus in that area, you had to be willing to give up getting peanut butter. And they, they created such a commotion over it. It caused so much tension that eventually the young couple had to leave the mission field and had to come back home. And imagine that conversation. Why did you leave the mission field? Well, because of peanut butter. But that's the sort of thing that Paul's been addressing in the last part of Colossians chapter 2. There were these false teachers who had come into the area of Colossae. They had approached these new Christians, and they were telling them that the only way they could know the fullness of salvation, the only way they could know the benefits and the blessings of real spirituality, is they had to add all of these extra rules. They had to deprive themselves of all sorts of different pleasures. And if 
If they would just debase themselves enough, if they would just deprive themselves enough, then maybe God would be happy enough that he would give them some mystical experience. We talked about this last time, where they were hoping to have uh, an encounter with an angel, or they were praying for some heavenly vision. And if you just established enough rules and debased yourself enough, you might have one of these grand experiences where you could reach the top of the spiritual mountain. And of course, Paul's concern with all of that stuff is it shifted the focus away from Jesus. So that the verses we looked at last time, Paul reminds them that what we're called to do in the Christian life is we just hold fast to the head. Jesus is the head and we're the body and everything we need comes through Jesus. All the nourishment we need comes through Jesus. All the growth we need comes through Jesus. All the unity that we need comes through Jesus. In other words, the way we grow as Christians and the way we persevere as Christians happens the same way that we became Christians. We grow as Christians and we persevere as Christians by holding fast to Jesus through faith. We never move past Jesus. Spiritual maturity does not mean you come to know Christ and then you move on to better things. We don't move past Jesus. We just move deeper into Jesus. But Paul's writing to a church that was being encouraged to add all of these extra layers to their faith. Maybe you need to add a little mysticism and add a little Greek philosophy and add a little Jewish legalism and add a little Gnosticism. And what was happening is they were adding all of these layers to their faith to the point you couldn't even see Jesus underneath it anymore. That added so much extra stuff to it that their faith was no longer about Jesus. And so Paul's focus in this letter, what he's urging these Christians and what he's urging these Christians in is that everything we need for life and godliness is found in Jesus. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All the wisdom you need is found in Jesus. In Jesus dwells the fullness of deity bodily. The way that we come to know God is through Jesus. Our spiritual life is in Jesus. Our sins are forgiven through Jesus. And we never move past that. Well, as we come to the last few verses of chapter 2, Paul's going to set his sights on a uh, particular form of legalism that's known as asceticism. Do you know what asceticism is? Asceticism is the idea that the way to real spiritual growth is through self-deprivation. In other words, if you can just deprive yourself enough, if you can punish your body enough and keep away enough good things from your body, your spirit will grow and flourish. This was a very common problem in the ancient world and it's still a problem today. Here's, let me give you another place where this is dealt with. This is in 1 Timothy 4. Paul's writing a letter to Timothy who's serving as a pastor in Ephesus. And here's what he warns Timothy about. I'm going to start in verses 1 and 2. He says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith. And I should just say, what are the latter times? The latter times are now. It's the period of time between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. Those are the last days. And here's the warning. Paul says, in the latter times, some will depart from the faith. 
giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. Now, just pause for a minute. So Paul's saying one of the things that's going to mark this period of time we live in is people are going to depart from the faith. Now, you know, when you see faith with that definite article, the, in front of it, when you see the faith talked about in the Bible, it's talking about the body of truth that makes up the Christian faith. So the faith is what you have to believe in in order to become a Christian. And Paul's warning, they're going to be false teachers who are going to lead people to deny the faith. They're going to lead people to walk away from the faith, to reject the faith. So, so what Paul's warning about here is apostasy, departing from the faith. Now what would lead somebody away from the faith? What would lead somebody who professes faith in Jesus to walk away from that? What does it look like? Well, we know one, one form of that is somebody who just renounces the gospel. We've seen this. Where it was someone one who once professed to be a Christian, and then the day comes where they come out and say, I'm not a Christian anymore. I don't even believe that God exists anymore. And they just go off into a depraved lifestyle. So that's, that's one form of departing from the faith, but it's not the only way someone can depart from the faith. So listen to how people were departing from the faith in Timothy's context. So verses 1 and 2 People are going to depart from the faith. What did that look like? Here's what it looked like. Picking up in 1 Timothy 4, 3. Paul says there, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Do you get the connection? So how were people in Timothy's area, how were these false teachers around Timothy causing people to depart from the faith? How are they leading people into apostasy? By adding all of these extra biblical rules. They were telling people to really please God, you need to abstain from marriage. Sure, God said it's fine to get married, but if you want to really be close to God, you've got to give yourself to a lifetime of remaining single. That's the only way, is if you stay celibate, that's the only way God will really be happy with you. And you've got to abstain from certain foods. Or maybe you need to on certain days abstain from all foods. And if you'll keep these certain fasts and abstain from all these different practices, then God will really be pleased. See, what they were teaching was a form of asceticism. You have to deprive yourself. You have to give up all of these extra things to please God. And how serious was that problem? How serious? It was so serious that Paul says they were causing people to depart from the true faith. You've got to get this now. So it is, it is absolutely true that people can depart from the faith through licentiousness. In other words, you can depart from the faith by giving yourself over to immorality. But it is also true that you can depart from the faith by falling into legalism. You can depart from the true faith by becoming so consumed with all of these extra laws and extra rules that you depart from the heart of the gospel. And that sort of thing has always had a way of worming itself into Christianity. There are extreme examples of it if you look to the past. For instance, this was the idea behind the whole monastic movement in the Middle Ages where there was this emphasis on men going into monasteries and you take a vow of poverty and you wear uncomfortable clothes, and you go through days upon days of fasting, and you don't sleep with a blanket at night during the winter, and you do all of this really hard stuff that makes your body suffer. They would even have 
uh, whips where they would self-flagellate. They would beat themselves on the back with whips as a way of punishing their body with the thought that if you can make your body suffer enough, that's the way to really please God. Um, Athanasius in the 4th century writes about a guy named Anthony. And Anthony had, had moved out into the desert and he lived the life of a hermit in order to be closer to God. He would only eat a diet of bread, water, and salt. And eventually he found an, an old Roman fort that had been abandoned in the middle of the desert. And for almost the next 20 years of his life, he lived inside the walls of that Roman fort. He wouldn't allow visitors to come in and see him. They would have to throw in food over the walls of that fort. Part, another part of his asceticism is he wouldn't change his clothes. And he wouldn't, you ready for this one, he wouldn't wash his feet. Because the idea was that the more you suffer, if, if you only eat meager rations and you don't give yourself the pleasure of having company with other people and you don't have the enjoyment of putting on a fresh pair of clothes or actually going through a shower, if you, if you make your body suffer enough, that's the path to real godliness. O Origen actually voluntarily castrated himself. For this purpose, he thought that I'll force myself to remain celibate my whole life. I will castrate myself, so I have to stay celibate. And if I do that, imagine how pleased God will be with me. Now, now I know those are extreme examples, but that mindset of spirituality is not an unusual mindset. And that's what Paul addresses in the last four verses, really, of Colossians chapter 2. He's already been warning against legalism and he continues with that and pushes into this manner of asceticism. So if your Bible's open to Colossians 2, we're going to read the last four verses together. Colossians 2, starting in verse 20. Paul writes, Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using, according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Now, I want to think about these verses under two big headings. Number one, I want to see the freedom that Jesus gives. The freedom that Jesus gives. Now, you've got to remember how these verses are connected to what came before. In fact, some of your translations will start, verse 20, with the word, therefore. So remember what Paul was just saying. He, he just said in the verses above this that all of those Old Testament ceremonial laws are like shadows. And Jesus is the substance. So we don't live under the shadows anymore because we have Jesus. He just said in the verses before this that Jesus is the head and we're the body. So everything that the body needs flows to us through the head. Therefore, Paul says, if you have died with Christ. And he's, he doesn't say if as if he's raising a question. It could be translated since. Paul's saying, since you have died with Christ. In other words, here's what it means to be a believer. If you are a Christian, if your trust is in Jesus, you have, spiritually speaking, died with Christ. This is what Paul talked about a little bit earlier in this chapter. 
where Paul said that one of the things we have in Christ is we have been baptized into Him. In His death and burial and resurrection, we're, we're so joined to Jesus. It's one of Paul's favorite subjects to talk about our union with Christ. We are so joined to Jesus spiritually that God sees us as if we were in Christ in His death and His resurrection. This is, again, what the ordinance of baptism is looking toward. We're giving this picture that we've identified through faith with Jesus in His death on our behalf and His resurrection. We're joined to Christ in faith. Okay, so Paul says this is what it means to be a believer. We have joined to Christ. We've died with Christ. We sang about this in one of our hymns last week. You know the the line in uh, Before the Throne of God Above, the last verse where it says, Behold Him there, the risen Lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am. Um, What's that next line? The great unchangeable I am, the King of glory and of grace, one with Himself I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. Do you you hear that language? One with Christ. My life is hid with Christ. I'm united with Christ. I'm counted as, as having been crucified with Christ. And based on that, Paul says, part of what you've died to with Christ, notice the phrase, are the basic principles of the world. Now, some of your translations will word that the the elemental spirits of the world, but I think basic principles is the right way to tra- translate that. It, it's the Greek word there that literally has to do with the fundamentals of any subject. Okay, so think of it like in the, the English language. The fundamentals of English are the alphabet. You, you've got to learn your ABCs. That's the fundamentals. But you don't stay at learning your ABCs, do you? In fact, you learn your ABCs in order to move on to other things. You learn your ABCs so that you can learn to read. You learn your ABCs so that you can move on to higher levels of knowledge. Well, Paul's saying it's like all of those Old Testament ceremonial laws were like spiritual ABCs. They were just there to teach us the basics, the basics about who God is you, you look at those Old Testament ceremonies and feasts and fasts and rules, and they're there to teach us basics about holiness and basics about uh, the fact we need a sacrifice to atone for our sins. But Paul's saying now that we, we are in Christ, we don't need, we don't need the basics anymore. I don't, listen, I don't need you to give me a worksheet uh, with dotted lines for ABC so I can learn how to write out my alphabet anymore. I don't need that anymore. I know how to read now. I've moved on from that to the purpose of it all. And Paul's saying that this is what we now have in Christ. Go- going back to all of those ceremonial rules and regulations, it's like the false teachers kept breaking out the crayons and the coloring sheets. They were wanting to take them back instead of going forward into what we now have in Christ. And Paul's saying, you've moved past that. When you were joined to Jesus, you died to all of that. Let, let me say it this way. The gospel is not a call to bondage. The gospel is a call to freedom. That's why Paul says, hey, if you've died to that, why do you keep subjecting yourself? This is what he says in verse 20. If you've died to that, why are you still subjecting yourself to all these regulations? And he he actually lists some of them out. Do not touch. Do not taste. Do not handle. And of course, he's quoting some of the Old Testament 
ceremonial laws. The Old Testament law was filled with stuff like that. Where if you ate the wrong thing, you were unclean. And if you touched the wrong thing, you were unclean. If you came in contact with the wrong thing, you were unclean. And what did it mean to be unclean? It meant you couldn't go to the temple. If you were unclean, you were not allowed to go to the temple. You weren't allowed to approach God. So how did you get clean? Well, you'd have to go through all of these ceremonial washings. All of these ceremonial bathings. And then you would have to bring certain sacrifices. And after going through all these procedures, finally the priest would declare you clean again. The whole thing was all so tedious. And it all drove home the point that it is absolutely, <coughs> it's absolutely impossible for sinners like us to keep ourselves clean. It's like God, God was showing in the Old Testament that he has set a standard we can't keep. We don't have the ability to keep ourselves clean. So they were constantly finding themselves unclean, constantly having to go through washings, constantly having to offer sacrifices. Because it was like God had set a standard they could not clear. And that's exactly right. That's still the case. You realize that, right? You, you read the Bible, and what becomes clear is God has set a bar. God has set a standard of holiness that you and I can't keep. The simplest way to think about this would be the most basic commandment of the Bible is this. It's where Jesus sums up the whole Old Testament by saying, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. How much of your heart, soul, mind, and strength does he command you to love God with? Some? Most? All? Well, let me just be honest with you. There has never been a single hour of my life where I have loved God that way. Which means I've spent the entirety of my life falling short of the most basic commandment in the Bible. So what's the solution? Well, the solution is grit your teeth and you need to add a few more rules to your life. If you would start getting up at 4 o'clock every morning and you'd spend at least an hour in prayer and you would read 16 chapters of the Bible and if you would fast at least 3 days a week, then you'd start loving God enough. And how does that work out? I, listen, I can keep all the rules in the book and it still won't fix this problem. I can keep applying more and more. You can come up with every rule you want to imagine and I can apply all this external scaffolding to my life and it will never fix the problem. I can't do it. But the whole point here is Jesus has and Jesus can. It, one of the amazing things to think about with the Lord Jesus is Jesus lived the entirety of his life where there was never a second of his life where he was not perfectly loving God the Father. There was never a second where he wasn't loving God the Father with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He kept every aspect of the law, the bar that we can't come close to clearing, he cleared the bar for us. And then he went to the cross to take the punishment for all of our sins against God. So the way that you and I are right with God, the, the, the way you and I ultimately please God, isn't by adding more and more and more and more and more and more rules so finally God will be happy with us. The way that God is pleased with us is only through Christ. It's solely by trusting in what He's done. It's what we're, we're going to sing at the end this morning. His robes for mine, a wonderful exchange. Clothed in my sin, 
Christ suffered neath God's rage. Draped in his righteousness, I'm justified. In Christ I live, for in my place he died. That, that's it. We put our trust in Christ and Christ alone. So, don't let anyone come along and impose their extra-biblical, super-spiritual rules on you. Don't let anyone tell you that there are these 25 extra do-nots that you have to keep if God's ever going to be happy with you. Do not play cards and do not go to movies. And ladies, do not wear pants. That's your only hope of God ever really being happy. Do you, do you see how that's reflected here where Paul says, you're falling under these regulations. Do not touch and do not taste and do not handle. And Paul's saying, you have died to all of that man-made religion. But man, it can be so hard to pull out of that. If, if you were raised in an environment where there was this thread of legalism that runs through it, it can be so hard to break away because we have this impulse in our hearts that is convinced to really please God, I've got to do more of that. I've got to figure out more ways to make myself suffer and more things to do to make God happy. It's sort of like this. Imagine a person, imagine someone who was born and raised in a tyrannical country where they actually had a, a law in place. They had a hard 6 o'clock p.m. curfew every night for every person. Every person in that whole nation, every citizen, has to be in their home before 6 o'clock every night at the threat of punishment. And this guy was born in that, he was raised in that his whole life. But then when he becomes an adult, he's rescued from that. He leaves that country and he comes here to the U.S. He renounces his former citizenship. He becomes a citizen of this country. He's not under those old laws anymore. But imagine not long after getting here, he's at the grocery store one night and he walks outside and he realizes that the sun is about to set and he looks at his watch and it is 5.57 and his heart sinks and he runs over to somebody who's getting in his car and says, man, you gotta, you got to help me, it's almost 6 o'clock, the law says I can't be out after 6, please get me home so I don't get in trouble. What would the person say to him? The person would say, man, I don't know who told you that, but there is no such law. You're not going to be punished for being out after six. You're free now. Well, that, that's what's happening to these people in Colossae. Is they have come to faith in Christ, but they still feel this pull. That surely there are more rules I need to keep. Surely there are more things I need to give up if my life is ever really going to please God. And Paul is saying to them, hey, you are not under that tyranny anymore. That's not the country that you belong to now. You have died to that in Christ. So let me just say again. Church, don't fall into the trap of thinking that holiness is all about creating a fence of extra do-nots for your life. Isn't this what the Pharisees did in Jesus' day? There was God's law. God's law is good. It shows us God's character. It, it convinces us of our sin. It shows us how to live a life after salvation that pleases God. God's law is good and it's right. But if God's law is good, then the Pharisees thought, how much better would it be if we added a few extra laws to that? Maybe the good way to think of it would be, let's say, let's say there was a law in the Bible that said, you're not allowed to touch this pulpit. So what the Pharisees did is they came along and they they started building fences out there. And then they built a fence a little further out. And they built a fence a little further out because if, if not doing this would please God, then surely if we didn't do 
any of this stuff on top of that, God would be even happier. And Paul is saying, that is not how you please God. That is not how you please God. God is not impressed by our extra biblical rules and self-deprivation. God is pleased with us through faith in Jesus alone. So there's freedom in Christ. That's the first point. Here's the second thing. Number two, Paul shows us the failure of asceticism. What Paul does next is he explains why, why the route of self-deprivation never really works. I'm going to highlight four reasons. Number one, it focuses on temporary things. Look again at verses 21 and going down into verse 22. They're being forced to follow these rules. Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle. And notice what Paul says about all those rules. They all concern things which perish with the using. In other words, all of these extra rules focus on perishable, temporary things. This is the exact same point that Jesus makes in the Gospel of Mark. We'll read a few verses from it in a second. Mark chapter 7 we're told of this story where uh, religious leaders from Jerusalem travel all the way up to Galilee. That's where Jesus is. So they travel almost 100 miles up to Galilee, and they're going up to Galilee with the intent of shutting Jesus' ministry down. Jesus is getting too popular. His reputation is spreading. So they've got to figure out something Jesus is doing wrong, something they can accuse him of that will ruin his credibility. And so they're watching Jesus and the apostles with the idea being, are these men right with God? Are they really clean with God? And, and the, the big question that's being raised in Mark 7 is this. How is a person clean? How are we right with God? How are we made clean? The idea of the religious leaders was, it's all the stuff out there that makes us unclean. So if we build enough fences so none of the stuff out there can get close to us, with enough fences we can stay clean and we'll be right with God. So here's how Jesus addresses it. Listen to Mark chapter 7. I'm starting in verse 14. We'll read this little section. Verse 14, it says, When Jesus had called all the multitude to himself, he said to them, Hear me, everyone, and understand. There's nothing that enters a man from outside which can defile him. But the things which come out of him, those are the things that defile a man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. When he'd entered a house away from the crowd, his disciples asked him concerning the parable. So he said to them, are you thus without understanding also? Do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from outside cannot defile him? Because it does not enter his heart, but his stomach, and is eliminated, thus purifying all foods. And he said, what comes out of a man, that defiles a man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within and defile a man. Do you see what Jesus is saying? They were so concerned with all of these food laws... And Jesus is saying, it's not the stuff that comes in from the outside that makes us unclean. Well, all, all food does, in other words, is it passes into your body, and then a little while later, food passes out of your body. It's temporary. What makes us unclean is not, not what comes from the outside. Maybe a good way to say it would be, 
the religious leaders were convinced that our problem is from outside in. Our problem is all the stuff on the outside that touches us and that makes us dirty. And Jesus is saying, our problem is not outside in. Our problem is inside out. Our problem is not we have all this stuff out there that infects us. Our problem is we have depraved hearts. Jesus says this, all this stuff, he uses the word that proceeds from our hearts. Proceeds is a word that means to bubble or to gush. So it's like Jesus is saying the human heart is a septic tank with a, a fountainhead on it. So that our hearts are constantly bubbling over with every sort of evil under the sun. And there's no set of extra rules you can add to fix that. Uh, rules about foods and drinks and feasts and fasts only deal with temporary things. All of those rules can't touch our souls. And it's our souls that really need to be touched. Okay, so it's all temporary. Here's the second thing. Number two, this asceticism and legalism, it relies on man-made rules. Look at how he says it at the end of verse 22. Paul, uh, Paul says that all of the rules about self-deprivation are, quote, according to the commandments and doctrines of men. That means all their personal rules had taken precedence over God's Word. They had come up with all these guidelines to keep their flesh in check, thinking that would please God. And in doing that, they were ignoring the real command of God's Word. L listen, what's the key command of the Gospel? The key command of the Gospel is not do, it's believe. The key command of the Gospel is not deny your flesh, it's depend on Jesus. The key command of the gospel is not try harder. The key command of the gospel is trust in Christ. So if Christianity for you is just about applying all of these extra rules to your life, those rules will never touch your heart. They'll never deal with the root of the problem. So let, let's just get particular. So if your whole view of what keeps you on God's good side is that you only listen to a certain kind of music and you don't drink or cuss or chew and you come to every service you can do all of that stuff and never have a heart that is really right with God and Paul's concern is they're adding all these rules and they're missing the core element of what God calls for us and what God calls us to is an absolute debased faith in Christ Jesus Christianity at its core is about loving Christ. A number of years ago, there was a lot of news coverage about a, a man named uh, Rob Smitty. And he got a lot of news attention because Rob Smitty was looking online and was aware of, of the desperate need for organ donors. And so he decided that he was going to donate one of his organs to a stranger. So he kept searching online. He found a young man who needed a kidney. And Rob Smitty decided to donate one of his kidneys to this young man he had never met before, just as an act of goodwill. And so, of course, he got a lot of news attention, such an act of self-sacrifice. And in one of the interviews, they asked Rob Smitty why he had made such a sacrifice. And he said that he had done it all because he wanted to make his daughter proud of him. Again, that sounds honorable, right? Well, reporters started digging into his story a little bit, and they found his daughter. His daughter's name was Amber. She was 10 years old. And they asked Amber what they thought about her father being a hero 
donating his organ. And listen to what Amber, 10-year-old Amber, said. She said, quote, My father never comes to see me. He never calls, even on my birthday. I don't think he's much of a hero. They started looking into Rob Smitty's records and found that he hadn't paid child support in almost a year. Now think about it. He says that he's making this extreme sacrifice of his kidney because he wants to make his daughter proud. And we would listen to that and go, well, man, if you want your daughter to be proud, spend time with your daughter. If you want, you want to make your daughter proud, love her. If you want to make your daughter proud, pursue a relationship with your daughter. Instead of doing this extreme act to impress her, love your daughter. Well, you and I can fall into that exact same trap spiritually. Where we do these extreme measures and we think these extreme measures will please God. It's not any of those extra rules. Do you want to please God? Know Christ. Trust Christ. Love Christ. Pursue Christ. Dig into Christ. But all this other stuff was putting more attention on man-made rules than what God really calls for. Here's the third thing. This sort of asceticism only appears to be wise. That's the way Paul says it in verse 23. He says, these things indeed have an appearance of wisdom. In other words, all of these self-imposed rules might look really impressive. Man, have you heard she still keeps the Old Testament dietary rules? Have you heard he takes a week off from work every year so he can keep the Feast of Tabernacles? Have you heard um, he hasn't, fill in the blank, right? Have you, have you heard what he, he doesn't eat meat on Fridays. He fasts three days every week. Man, have you seen how holy he is? And Paul says that stuff gives the appearance of wisdom. That means it's hollow. It's not real wisdom. Because where is real wisdom found? What did he tell us earlier? He told us earlier, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So you can boil it down to this. You and I are going to have to make a choice. Do you want to appear to be godly? Or do you actually want to know God? There's one path you can take that will give all the appearance in the world of godliness and you'll never actually know God. Well, here's the final thing. Number four, all of these rules and regulations can't actually restrain your flesh. Paul says, look at the, rest, the, the last half of verse 23. He says, the self-imposed religion, false humility, neglect of the body... But these things are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. You see what Paul's saying? All the rules in the world can't restrain your flesh. You remember what your flesh is, the way Paul uses that word? Your flesh is that, uh, that ruling impulse in the fallen heart that is hostile to God. It's that ruling impulse in our hearts that loves our sin and we love ourselves, but we don't love God. We don't want God telling us what to do. It's that, that nature we have that kicks against God. And again, we all feel that. We sense that our ultimate problem is internal. The, the, the reason why I speak harshly to my family sometimes is because in my heart it bubbles over with pride and selfishness and, and anger. The reason we fail in sexual sin is because we have hearts that bubble over with lust. So rules and self-deprivation might 
restrain my ability to act out on my desires, but all the rules in the world will never actually change my desires. And what we need isn't just to restrain desire, we need new desires. So how do we make that happen? And of course the answer is we can't. We don't. That's something only God can do. Think of the conversation Jesus has with Nicodemus, who's a leader. In fact, Jesus calls Nicodemus the teacher of Israel. He's renowned for his teaching. He's keeping every law he knows of, but he knows something's still missing. So he comes to Jesus, and what is Jesus' message to, to Nicodemus? Unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. That's what we need. Nicodemus could have added every rule. You could have given him 200 more rules and he could have kept them all. But what he ultimately needed was to be born again. He needed God to make him alive. He needed God to give him a new heart. And that's what God does for us in Jesus. This is what Paul described earlier where he said, it is only through Jesus that our hearts are circumcised. It's only in Jesus that our flesh's ruling power in our lives is finally cut away. All the rules in the world can't undo that. Listen to the way Alexander McLaren described it. I love this quote. He wrote, The world and the flesh are very willing that Christianity should shrivel into a religion of prohibitions and ceremonials. Because all, because all manner of vices and meanness may thrive and breed under these, like scorpions under stones. There is only one thing that will put the collar on the neck of the animal within us, and that is the power of the indwelling Christ. I love that quote. You can have all sorts of rules and ceremonies, and what's really evil in your heart will lurk underneath your rules like scorpions underneath a rock. But the only thing that can put the collar on the animal within us is the indwelling Christ. So brothers and sisters, don't depend on your rules. Don't depend on your ability to deprive yourself enough to please God. Depend on Christ. God declares us righteous in Him. God does the work of growing us in righteousness through Him. So make the heart of your Christianity this. We cling to Christ. He's our righteousness. Let's bow together for a word of prayer.